Okay, our text today is John 16, 8 through 15. 16, 8 through 15. I'm going to read for us John 16, starting at verse 7. And this is the word of Almighty God. Jesus speaking here says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Pray with me, friends. Lord... Help us know you better and find joy in your word. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Ponder people's personalities with me for a moment. Some folks are outgoing, charismatic, meaning they have charisma. They're the life of the party. Do you know anybody like that? When they walk into a room, the room re-centers around them. Everybody notices them. Everybody gets to know them. A quiet room gets louder. A dreary room starts having the sounds of laughter. And it all seems to have something to do with a force of personality that somebody brings. On the other hand, there's the quiet guy. He can slip into the corner of a room and not say a word all night long. People may or may not notice his presence. The room doesn't recenter around him, but may in fact form up in circles that exclude him. If he doesn't move from time to time, it may be that people stop seeing him. When he sneezes, Some people say, bless you, and others say, oh, there you are. Which of these people is valuable? That's a foolish question, isn't it? Both are valuable. Both matter. Neither is more important than the other. Just because one personality is gifted in a more socially noticeable way doesn't mean that the other isn't gifted by God in great ways. Maybe the loud guy draws everybody's attention, but it may be the quiet one who actually knows what he's talking about. Maybe the fun person draws a crowd, but the soft-spoken one may be the more caring, the more loving the more prayerful, the more faithful friend. 
praise God that he uses the big personalities among us to bring groups together and liven them up. You know how miserable we'd be if we didn't have a few loud people? But also praise God that God has in our midst the quiet ones who are just as important to the body. Well, I was thinking about big personality and the quiet personality a bit when looking at our study of the Apostles' Creed. If you read through the Creed, you get some big statements about God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. You get line after line about Jesus, his identity, his work. And then you get this about the third person of the Trinity. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's it. It's almost as if the early church took time to define and describe the Father and the Son. And then somehow the church looked over in the corner, spotted the Spirit and said, Oh yeah, Him too. Now, I think we know that the early church had more to say about the Spirit of God. But the creed was aimed at clarifying the truth of the person and work of Jesus far, far more than defining the role of the Spirit. In my experience, there are two extremes that we're drawn to when talking about the Spirit of God. One extreme is to fail to notice him altogether. That tends to be the flaw of Reformed churches. And we are one. You will recognize yourself with the tendency of failure to notice the Spirit if you are the kind of person who's apt more to call the Spirit it instead of him. Do you do that? The Spirit is a him, not an it. In the one extreme, we, we see the work of the Father. And all of Scripture focuses us on the promise and fulfillment of the Son. But when it comes to the Spirit, if you're on this one side, it's just not very defined. And we acknowledge the Spirit with an appreciative nod. But... You know, I mean, honestly, let's not get all mystical and silly, right? The other extreme, of course, is to focus so much on the Spirit that the church perverts his identity and his ministry. You see that in churches, churches, churches that focus. You know, saying churches that focus is not as easy as you'd think. You see this in churches that focus so much on the spirit that Jesus becomes a near afterthought. And in those churches, you see an overemphasis on spiritual gifts, especially sign gifts. There's a focus on feelings and urges and nudges. And there's not that much focus on scripture. You find in those groups a focus on Let's sing in such a way that it overwhelms the emotion. And sometimes they forget about whether or not they're actually declaring the truth of the Lord. Well, in truth, a look at the scripture shows us that the role and the personality of the Spirit of God is not that of the center of attention. 
When you see the Spirit, the Spirit's pointing people to Jesus. The Spirit moves in subtle and unseen or very seldom seen ways. He very, very seldom steps to center stage to take a bow. But if we're going to be a faithful church, and we want to be, we cannot be a people who honor the Father, embrace the Son, and then look at the Spirit and say, oh yeah, Him too. Well, the Spirit's not, definitely not, wanting us to focus on Him and make Him the center of attention, because the Spirit points us to Jesus. The Spirit of God is a person. He is worthy of worship. Jesus said to his disciples, it's better for them that Jesus leave them and complete his mission and send the spirit. That's better than it would be had Jesus just remained physically present with them. The spirit of God is not a consolation prize for losing Jesus. The spirit of God is a glorious person, a dear friend, a great treasure. And in our passage for today, Jesus, he's in the process of preparing his disciples for his soon departure. And Jesus has been offering his friends comfort in the promise of the Spirit to come. And now as we move forward in the passage, we're going to watch Jesus let his disciples in on three roles the Spirit of God will play that have a dramatic, glorious impact on our lives. Now these are by no means all that the Spirit does. But these are a great place for you and me to start to get a glimpse of reasons that we should be grateful to God for the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So let's get started. We're going to write three points down as we study the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And every one of these points are things we can thank God for doing through the Spirit and There are going to be things that we can pray that God will continue to do in his spirit in us today. So, are you ready? Point number one, pray for the spirit to convict the lost. Pray for the spirit to convict the lost. And that'll be verses 8 through 11. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, last time we were in this passage, two weeks ago, I spent a good deal of time talking with us about How can it be better for a believer that Jesus departed to be with his father? After all, it seems counterintuitive for us naturally to believe that we who do not see Jesus with us physically are in a better position than the disciples who had Jesus with them in the room. I mean, be honest with me. If you get a choice between not seeing Jesus and sitting across the table from Jesus, you're probably picking the latter, right? But you need to believe what Jesus said when he says this is better. Jesus guarantees us it's true that it's better that you have the Spirit than for him to be sitting across the table from you right now. And in that message, I gave us five reasons 
having the Holy Spirit is better. The Spirit lives inside believers, not simply with believers. The Spirit lives with all believers, not simply some believers. The presence of the Spirit means that Christ's atoning work is complete. The presence of the Spirit means that we're under God's new covenant. And the Spirit performs a ministry that is different than Christ's. How many of you remember those five points? A couple of you are lying right now. That last item, the Spirit performs a ministry that's different than Christ's. That's what we're going to look at from verses 8 to 15 today. And in that sentence, I'm not suggesting to you that the, the will, that the Spirit and, and Jesus are not united in will. I'm not suggesting that the Spirit and Jesus are not united in essence. They most certainly are. But I'm suggesting to you this, that the Spirit and the Son of God perform different functions in accomplishing the ultimate plan of God. That makes sense, doesn't it? Just think about it this way. Who died for you, the Spirit or the Son? Who seals you for the day of the Son's return? Spirit, different work, different persons, one God. Now, the first job we see the Holy Spirit doing in the passage for today is convicting. Verse 8 says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Quick quiz. How many of you know what it feels like to be under the Holy Spirit's conviction? Anybody here not know what that's like? But the Spirit of God to convict you, it's when God makes you aware of your guilt before God. Have you ever felt your guilt before God? It's when he proves you to be guilty, when he shows us our fault, when he lets us know that we are what we are without excuse. And the Spirit of God is going to come convict the world in three areas concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. So let's talk concerning sin. In verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit will perform the task of convicting the world concerning sin. Now, you guys know sin is not a popular word these days? Maybe if you understand the word better, It'll help. Sin, most simply put, means to miss the mark. You guys have heard that before, right? Have you ever, have you ever tried archery? Anyone ever tried archery? Have you ever tried archery blindfolded? You don't know what you're missing. That was better than you think. Sin, it's an archery term. It means to miss the mark. 
It means that you fail to hit the bullseye of perfection. How many of you in your lives have shot for perfection and just missed that center ring? How many of you have missed the entire target? We know what this is like, right? Yeah. Sometimes when you sin, it is transgression to meaning to step across the boundary line of God's commands. Have you ever done that? Earlier this morning, one of your monstrous children looked directly at his mother, heard his mother tell him not to do a thing, and did it anyway. I'm not going to tell you which of our elder families this was. (laughs) Anthony. Uh, Have you ever had God tell you, don't do this, and you stepped right on across the line and did it anyway? If you say no, you're lying. I know you all better than that, because I know me better than that. But sometimes... Sin is your omission, your failure to do that which is commanded. Have you ever been told a thing to do that was right and not done it? Children, have you ever been told to make your bed and not somehow managed to make it happen yet? That's a sin of omission. That's not doing What you're told. Sin is when we're impure in places where purity is the standard. Sin is when we are anything less than absolutely perfect. Let's just do a quick poll. How many of you know you are guilty of sin? Okay. Most people, if they're honest, have no trouble admitting that we from time to time, whether by accident or on purpose, fall short of absolute perfection and the holiness of God. Well, here's the question. Is there a specific sin that the Spirit is going to convict the world of? The Spirit will specifically convict the world of sin regarding the most grievous sin that there is. And that is the sin of failing to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3 verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. By the way, just right there, how many were happy about that line? But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Hebrews 2, verses 2 and 3 read, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Or Hebrews 10, 28 and 29. Anyone 
who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? 1 John 5.10 says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Or Jude verse 5 says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What do those verses teach us? There is a running theme, and that theme has been present through the entire Bible. God has saved those who have believed in him. God has punished the sin of those who have refused to believe in him. If you refuse to have faith in Christ, you reject God. Because Christ is the Son of God, sent by the Father to accomplish the Father's will. Christians, let's learn from this to pray that God will convict the world of their sin of unbelief. Let's pray that lost people all over the world would recognize that they have been turning their backs on the only hope that they have for salvation. Let's pray that God will save souls by taking through people through that first, that necessary step of the conviction of their sin by the Holy Spirit. That's what the Spirit came to do. But he also is going to convict concerning righteousness. Verse 10 says... Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So God's Spirit's going to convict the world of righteousness. Does that sound weird to you, by the way? That doesn't read like typical normal English. I think it'll make sense, though. All men in the world have a knack of thinking themselves to be basically good. Have you noticed this? If you ask a person, if you died, do you think you would go to heaven or hell? If they're willing to answer you, what, where do most people say they're going to go? Most say heaven. If you ask them, why do you think you'll go to heaven? Almost all of them will say to you, I'm not a bad person. You ever notice this? And they'll usually start listing high crimes that they've not committed. Well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not a terrorist. I'm not a whatever. As if that's the entry gate requirement for heaven. I'm just checking to weed out the murderers here. The rest of you all come in. But God says, in Isaiah 64, verse 6, about our goodness, 
We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds, not our bad deeds, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Or Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Let's see if you're paying attention. How many of us do good on our own? Deuteronomy 12, verse 8. You shall not do according to all that we're doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. The fact is, people have always generally thought themselves to be right. They've thought themselves to be right, right, righteous. The words go together. But God says, we do not have any genuine righteousness on our own. We are guilty of sin. We have failed. We have fallen short of God's perfection. And the job of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of this worldly, man-made, selfish righteousness. We should feel that we're guilty of a false righteousness if God hasn't given us a new righteousness. We are guilty of self-made righteousness. And the Spirit uses the resurrection of Jesus and Jesus' return to his Father to convince us that there's only one righteous person, Jesus Christ. And in comparison to Jesus, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. How does the return of Jesus to the Father have anything to do with that conviction? Well, Jesus' resurrection from the grave, his ascension to the throne of the universe, his glorious return to heaven alive reminds us that Jesus perfectly satisfied God's demand for perfect righteousness. Only Jesus could step out of a grave because only Jesus lived an absolutely perfect life that could defeat death itself. In contrast, by the grace of the Spirit, we see our lives as not nearly righteous enough if we're left on our own. We can't defeat death. We certainly can't stroll into the throne room of God. Listen to Psalm 24, verses 3 through 5. Here's the question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? How do you guys feel about that question? How many of you would like to say, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, me and my goodness, of course. How many of you are like, man, I can traipse into the throne room of God and plop down in his chair because, hey, I'm not a murderer. Does that do it for you? You're not that good. You're not as good as God. And here's what the standard is from the psalm. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Let me ask you guys this question. I just want you to put a name to it. Instead of this description, here's the question. Who is worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord? Jesus and Jesus only. And that reminds us that you and I could never ascend the hill of the Lord. We could never ascend into heaven to the throne room of God without Jesus's righteousness given to you and me as a gift. So Christians, pray that the Holy Spirit will do what he's come to do. Pray that the Spirit will convict the world of their false righteousness. Pray that the Spirit will convict the world of thinking that they're not that bad. Pray that the Spirit of God will convince your friends, your family, your neighbors, your co-workers, maybe you, that when we start off, we are sinners against God who need Jesus as our Savior. And pray especially that the Spirit of God will bring that conviction to people that have bought into those works-based religions where people think they will get in good with God by them doing good deeds. Verse 11 says, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So the third type of conviction that we're going to feel, the world's going to feel because of the Spirit, is concerning judgment. The world is under judgment. Why is the world under judgment? They have failed to believe. They have lived with a false, sinful, worldly, man-made self-righteousness. They have misjudged Jesus, thinking Jesus to be of no significance, and they have overestimated their own goodness. Satan, the leader of all things sinful and godly, is under the judgment of God. He will be judged. He will be found guilty. He will be cast into hell forever. And the world who follows Satan by rejecting Jesus will suffer the very same judgment. Christians, pray that the Holy Spirit will convict the world regarding judgment. Pray that the Spirit will make people so fear the fire of hell and the wrath of God that they will tremble under the burden of that horror. Pray that they'll recognize that they stand condemned and that they must run to Christ because there they will find mercy. Pray that the Spirit will do His work of convicting the world. And realize, thank God, that's precisely the work Jesus said the Spirit's going to do. Neither you nor I can convict the world of sin. It's probably good for you to remember you're not the Holy Spirit, by the way. We can't change hearts. We cannot bring life where life does not exist. We cannot save souls. But the Spirit of God who lives within us can. God's Spirit convicts people of their need for Jesus. So let's pray and let's thank God for the Spirit that God has sent. Point number two. 
feel like that was a lot of points already. But point number two. Pray for God's Spirit to teach you His Word. Pray for God's Spirit to teach you His Word. Look at 12 and 13. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Y'all remember the context of this setting when Jesus is saying this stuff? The disciples are tired, man. They're, they're stressed out. They are grieved. They don't understand what Jesus has been saying. He's talking about leaving. The things they can understand from Jesus is causing them deep distress. Jesus told us this in verse 6. So Jesus tells them he knows they can't understand anything else he's about to tell them, though he has a great deal that they need to know if they want to live as believers. They they just can't bear it right now. Have you ever been in that spot, by the way, where where you know there's more you need to know, but your brain is full? Or or, you ever been in that spot where your emotions are just rubbed raw and so you just can't take more teaching? That's where the disciples were. And Jesus is like, I know I can't lay a bunch more on you right now. But thankfully, the Holy Spirit has another job that he's going to perform that's going to take care of the problem that we have here. In the days to come, the Holy Spirit is going to lead the disciples of Jesus into all truth. The Spirit is going to speak to the disciples what he hears from the Father, and he's going to tell the disciples what is to come. What could this mean? Does this mean that if you're a Christian... If you've got the Spirit of God, does that mean that you all the time are going to be hearing brand new pieces of revelation from God? Does it mean that the church is going to always tell people what God is saying to them? No. It doesn't mean that, at least not in the mystical sense that a lot of people look for in the Spirit. What this passage is pointing to is one thing, one wonderful thing, one glorious thing. Jesus is right here predicting the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the Bible. Listen to the words of a couple commentators here on this thought. This is great. Here's what John Calvin says about this passage. I don't know if you guys, are you guys pro-Calvin? Yes. Some of you are. Some of you are, but you've never actually read him, so I don't know. Here's what Calvin says. He will lead you into all truth. That very spirit had led them into all truth when they committed to writing the substance of their doctrine. Whoever imagines that anything must be added to their doctrine as if it were an imperfect but or half-finished not only accuses the apostles of dishonesty but blasphemes against the spirit. If the doctrine which they committed to writing had proceeded from mere learners or persons imperfectly taught, in addition to it would not be superfluous. But now that their writings may be regarded as perpetual records of that revelation which was promised and given to them, nothing can be added to them without doing grievous injury to the Holy Spirit. You know what Calvin was saying? Don't think you need more than the Bible. How about the Baker New Testament commentary? William Hendrickson, Simon Kistemacher. 
That's a great name to say. When Jesus now states, I have yet many things to say to you, he clearly shows that the later revelation, which was going to be deposited in written form in Acts, the epistles, and the book of Revelation, was his own work. Hence, it is a great error to speak about Paul's gospel as being opposed to Christ's gospel. The later revelation, moreover, does not contain truths that are brand new. The later revelation, so on the contrary, <clears throat> I did this wrong, does not contain, I mean, I can't read. The later revelation, moreover, does not contain truths that are brand new. On the contrary, springing from the same source, it is the same old truth gloriously clarified and amplified. Those men of God are saying to us, Jesus is promising the scriptures. The Bible is going to be inspired by the Spirit of God. The Bible is going to be the, the Spirit of God leading the disciples into all truth, truth that the Spirit speaks to the authors of the Bible as he's been commanded by the Father. Make sense? Can I give you a quick Travis pet peeve? That's why I don't like red letter Bibles. And I can't even see the color red. But don't let yourself think that some words of the Bible are important and other words are lesser. That's a mistake. I'm not telling you to throw your red letter, letter Bible out. Take a dark pen and just highlight the red letters back to black. It'd be a good project for a lot of you. You'd read a lot more Bible if you had to do No, don't, don't throw them out. But don't let yourself think this is in red. It's more important than what's in black over here. 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21 says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let me ask you guys this. Christians, do you believe those words of God are true? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit has in fact led the followers of Jesus into all truth by inspiring the scriptures? You believe your Bible is truly the inspired, perfect word of God? If you do, you should love God's word. You should study God's word. You should treasure God's word. You should center your life around God's word. You should pray that God's Holy Spirit would help you to understand and apply God's word. He is very, very familiar with it. Don't seek mystical revelation outside of the Bible. Ask God to help you know the Bible. As you understand the scriptures, you will know everything you need to know to live a life of godliness. What cause for celebration is this, guys? 
The very Spirit of God who inspired the authors of Scripture to write down God's holy word has been sent by God to indwell you, Christian. You can benefit from Scripture. You can learn from Scripture. There's a doctrine with a terrible name. Systematic theologians will tell you of the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. The worst thing is, the word perspicuity means it's clarity and understandability. Why they chose a word nobody understands to mean understandable is beyond me. But I didn't write the books because I'm not that smart. If you know Jesus, if you have the Spirit, you can understand, learn from, grow from, apply the Word of Almighty God. You can hear the very voice of God in Scripture. Because the Spirit who inspired Scripture never leaves you, you don't have to be a scholar. I'm not saying don't learn, but you don't have to be a genius. You don't have to know Greek and Hebrew. It is a Muslim religious trope that if you want to read the words of God, you must read them in their original language. The Muslim would say to you, if you've never read the Quran in Arabic, it doesn't count. God does not say that. Instead, God has given us his word, and given us faithful translators to help us have it in our language. Thanks be to God. And by the way, I promise you, if you want to study your Greek and Hebrew, have at it, but you'll never be better than the translators. You might catch something they didn't catch. You might catch something that needs to be nuanced or explained, of course. But friends, don't stress. God gave you the Bible in your language Praise God for that, because there's people all over the world who don't have it. Praise God for his Spirit's presence with us as we study the Bible. One more thing the Spirit's going to do. Third point. Pray for God's Spirit to show you Jesus' glory. Verses 14 and 15. You guys still okay, by the way? I feel like we're going long. You okay? Handle one more? Two more? Just check it. There's only one more, but I want to see what you were saying. All right. So, Jesus said, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus says that the Spirit of God, in declaring the truth to the disciples, is going to glorify Jesus. This is the ministry of the Spirit that we're going to study for the last point today. The Holy Spirit helps you, helps me, Christian, saint, glorify Jesus. How does he do that? The Spirit teaches us the truth about Jesus, namely that Jesus is God the Son, the perfect sacrifice for our sins, who rose from the grave after conquering death. All through John's Gospel, the Holy Spirit has led John to make sure that you and I see Jesus as God. Not a good teacher, not just a prophet, not mini God, sub God, less than God. 
Listen at the beginning of the book in John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? That's right. He was in the beginning with God. Or in John 8, 58, Jesus uses the I am, that's only God language, to refer to himself. He says, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is God. And the Holy Spirit made sure that the authors of Scripture didn't miss it. And this is good, good news. He wants you to see. He wants me to see that Jesus is God. And then he wants you and me to glorify Jesus as Jesus deserves to be glorified as God. Now, why is this good? Besides just being right. I mean, we like true things because true things are true and we're into true things. It's a good thing that you would glorify God. Why? Because God made you for that purpose. He made you for the purpose of giving him glory. You exist. You exist to show people how big, how awesome, how wonderful, how perfect, how powerful is God. And nothing, absolutely nothing in all creation will make you happier or fill you with more joy than when you do what God made you to do. Does that make sense? Young people, children people, if God had made you a hammer, what would make you happy? Children? If you were a hammer, what would make you happy? Okay, hitting, hitting nails, right? Okay. If God had made you an F-35 airplane, what would make you happy? There you go. If God had made you... I don't know what else to suggest. If God had made you a Formula One race car, what would make you happy? Going fast, right? If God made you... For the purpose of showing off his glory. Do you know what will make you happiest? Showing people God's glory. Glorifying God. The spirit glorifying Jesus. Is the spirit leading you and me. To do the thing that will give you and me. The greatest possible happiness we could ever have. So we should pray. That the spirit will help us glorify Jesus. Why is it good for Jesus to send us the Holy Spirit instead of just staying physically with us? We saw some stuff last time, but it's good for Jesus to send the Spirit because the Spirit can convict the whole world, not just, not just whoever stands around us. The, the Spirit convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit inspires the Scriptures. The Spirit revealed to us all the truth we would ever need to know about God and God's ways. The Spirit points us to Jesus. The Spirit calls us to give Jesus glory. The Spirit convicts us. The Spirit teaches us what's right. The Spirit helps us to find our life's biggest joy as we glorify Jesus If you're a believer here this morning, thank God for the Spirit of God. Thank God for convicting you of sin. And ask God, oh God, please keep it up. Ask God to convict the world so they might come to know Jesus too. Thank God for His Spirit inspiring the Scriptures. Ask Him, oh God, help me understand the Scriptures and follow the Scriptures and treasure the Scriptures. 
Thank God that the Spirit points you to Jesus and calls you to glorify Jesus and ask God to help you find your life's ultimate purpose and joy in bringing glory to Christ. And if you're hearing my voice and you're not a believer yet, I urge you, listen to the Spirit of God. You, if you don't know Jesus, are a sinner in need of God's grace. You've got no righteousness that will help you get your way to God. You are under God's judgment. God's word points you to Jesus and says, Jesus is your only hope to be forgiven. So I urge you, I urge you, stop fighting God. Turn to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus and be forgiven by God based on the finished work done by Jesus. Let's pray together, friends. Lord, I'm so grateful for your word. I'm grateful for you teaching us about the spirit. We're not good at knowing all of what you have planned, all of how you work, all of who the spirit is. But God, we would pray that you would help us to truly know your spirit, to be grateful for your spirit. No, we're not going to focus on the spirit so directly because that's not the spirit's role. But we can certainly be thankful. And I pray that that's what we'll do. Help us be thankful for the Spirit who points us to Jesus. Help us to be thankful for the wonderful mystery of Christ revealed in the Word of God. Work on us, Lord. Save our souls and make us follow you faithfully. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.